Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Global climate change, the possibility of a war in the Middle East, 
um, people with Iranian connections being held up at the border, children in cages at the border for coronavirus. And Brandy um, wanted to discuss how theurgy can be used to bring all of humanity together. Incredible. And uh, Yeah, so basically what I did was I looked up material, um, you know, current events and the like, and so that we could present that. So, so everyone would be on the same page. And then we're actually able to, to go in and, um, and, and, and look at each of those points. It's, it's an approach that I've used on panels before, and it works quite well. Because, for instance, children in cages at the border, um, there may be people who may not be all that familiar with, uh, exactly with what's happening. So I was able to, to come up with, you know, short news reports and the like, just to, just to bring everyone up to speed. Um, a lot but, of people have forgotten about that uh, because so many other things have happened. And it, it seems that uh, right now we're living in a time of great distraction uh, where it's, it's hard to follow any one or handful of things because there's so many other things uh, that, uh, y- you know, you are confronted with or that you get hit with. Um, so I'm glad that you touched upon that topic. Exactly. And the, the media can be quite deceptive because they will cover an issue and then all of a sudden they stop talking about it. And when they stop talking about it, you kind of get the impression that perhaps it's gone away. Like mm-hmm. this example that is what's happening in Fukushima. That happened a number of years ago. So you could readily conclude from that situations taken care of, nothing else to worry about. Whereas the truth is, it's still pouring out huge amounts of radioactivity into the ocean. Um, right. Still, still, contaminating, still contaminating the planet. But because the media isn't talking, the, um, the mainstream media isn't talking about it, it's very easy to come to the conclusion that not much is happening. You know, it's the same thing with um, people with Iranian connections being held up at the border. That happened just after um, the incident in Iran with that assassination. Not much has been happening, not much has been reported in the news since. But I'd be willing to wager that Iranian people um, are still being harassed. It's just that we're not hearing about it. That, those are excellent uh, points. And uh, um, aside from the uh, distraction, the fact that things are not, uh, you know, things are reported and then not always uh, followed up with uh, uh, the coverage. Um, it's the conflicting reports that also exist too. It's very difficult to know which pieces of information are trustworthy and which uh, pieces of information are are not in this particular time as well. Exactly, and each each news source has um, has led to disappointment on occasions. There are a few news sources that I, I tend to gravitate towards, like stuff from BBC News. Um, I, I like foreign news services. I don't really trust the news <clears throat> in this country. It tends to be either too heavily biased to the left or too heavily biased to the right. So I, I, I'm interested in the truth rather than getting news with bias. Right. And both sides are accusing each other of uh, giving uh, false information or disinformation or, uh, as uh, the right calls it, fake news. <laughs> it is, again, very hard to, to discern what is actually happening. It, it, it is very difficult to discern what's happening. Um, so it, it, it's a matter of, of doing your best, trying to look at various news sources and trying to piece together a story. On that note, we'll go to Brandy to see if she can add to what you uh, said. 
So, yeah, the other thing that Tony did that was really interesting is that in addition to his talking points, he also had um, ideas about specifically Olympian deities that we can connect up to solving those problems, right? And I think that that was very important because in addition to being informed, people also really want to know what they can do, where they can go next. And they specifically look to, to us when we, we stand up in the, the theurgy forum, when we do these forums. They're looking um, for both information and what can I do, how can I do it next. And so I thought it was a really lovely set of, um, set of, of connections. Um, and at the, at the very end, we were talking about um, the earth, and uh, somebody from the audience said, you know, you should also include Gaia in, in your um, – in, in, in uh-huh. your workings, and I said that's a that's a really good idea. So I, I would really love to see Tony. I'd love to see you like write that up. Um, and I think that we we do that a lot here on this forum. We talk about issues, and then we make suggestions to people about what they can do. And I suggested before that we really should like um, try to get transcripts of these, and also collect those suggestions that we have for people and put them up somewhere. Um, start start a website and stick them up. So I want to renew that. Um, that suggestion here and, and suggest that, that we, we start writing down these things so people can, can continue to, to move forward. Um, there, there is a lot of work that people want to do, a lot of energy and, and excitement around that work, and I think we can enlist people to do it. I, I believe so uh, as well, and uh, I agreed with you wholeheartedly when you brought it up. I think the next step would be to, to get transcription software, I guess, and this way we can transcribe uh, all the things that we've talked about since the beginning of the forum and then organize the, uh, the material and then uh, expand on it. Uh, and Tony has proven himself to be a phenomenal researcher, so we know that we'll have all the up-to-date yeah. information uh, uh, to add into it. And Brandy, you're a great uh, big-picture person, um, and you're <laughs> able to synthesize everything and put it together and make really great suggestions. So we have that on board. Uh, so I think we'll do really great, especially if uh, Bruce and um, Jean-Louis and uh, others get involved as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'd, like, I'd love to, to move that forward um, wh- uh, however we can do it. I have a suggestion. Um, I have a new radio show starting. This one's going to be not on Block Talk Radio, but on uh, uh, HD Radio out of Fairleigh Dickinson U- University. And it'll be starting fairly soon. I, I'm guessing by the end of the first quarter of this year, it'll be up and, and running. Uh, the unfortunate part of that is that uh, they don't want any controversial topics, uh, including religion and <laughs> politics. So I can't do this on that station. However, they have professional studio equipment, and they offered to teach me how to edit and you know clean up sound and do things like that. So because I'm a slow learner with things like that, I figure it takes me another <laughs> three months <laughs> to master that and to feel comfortable with it. So figure by mid-year, um, we should be able to do it. And then we could take all of the uh, theurgy podcasts. Uh, we can, uh, you know, basically uh, um, transcribe them. Uh, we can clean them up and we can put them on YouTube. And this way they're available to a wider audience as we put the book together. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, good. So that's our course of action. And I'm open to better courses of action. So as soon as one of us uh, comes up with something, uh, that's better. We'll do that instead. Actually, I've got one other avenue. Um, okay. Up, up until a few months ago, I was writing a column for Pathios, and I've been dragging my feet on writing it, 
partly because I've been kind of lacking inspiration as to what to write about. And I'm thinking okay. I can kill two birds with one stone, which is an interesting expression for a vegetarian to use. But um, <laughs> I, what I'd be able to do is to, is to actually summarize, summarize our work, our talking points, and put them into a blog for Pathios. So that way that I'd, I'd be keeping the people happy and I'd be able to um, um, have some sort of record of the things, of the things that we talk about. Because I actually did put a fair bit of work into the panel that, that we did at Pantheon. So it'd be good to um, immortalize some of that work. Because there, there we workshopped a whole lot of ideas together as to what we could do. So that involved going beyond normal activism. And as Brandy pointed out, bringing in appropriate gods. And I always love to quote Bruce um, when he when he says that you know when in doubt call on all twelve gods and you there know you why go. stop them? why not call in a few others um, but you know sometimes one god may be more appropriate than others so you can you can focus in on that particular one. <clears throat> That's an excellent idea. Now you inspired me into a new avenue of thought. Uh, I'm also asked to write. Uh, things uh, fairly often for uh, now anthologies and uh, uh, for uh, magazines, both print and uh, um, e-magazines. So that I can budget time, uh, let's say once a month to write a short piece on what we're doing and I can get it published there. And this way the word spread beyond the uh, pagan community uh, into other communities as well. But the the beauty of this is that you're doing one bit of research and coming up with at least two different things. So um, I'm coming up with material either either for a panel or for this particular radio show and also coming up with material for um, a blog. So like I said, two, two outcomes for one bit of research, which makes a lot of sense. It certainly does. And you do the research anyway, and you do it very thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate them. Well, I really appreciate uh, the amount of work that you put into the things that you say. Hey, can I, can I say one more thing? The sure. best thing about PopsyCon was catching up with Brandy and Ted and catching up with Bruce. And there's another guy called Denny Sargent, who's um, the, the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, there were so many wonderful people there, but actually having the theurgical gang there made it uh-huh. really, really special. So we broke bread together a couple of times. We went off to um, Llewellyn functions together. It was it was really really nice. So having having the gang there made the event much more special for me. I just wanted to to put that out there. Awesome. I have to say, yeah, it was it was really fun. People who came to the panel said that we looked like two brothers and a sister because we were clearly <laughs> we were really comfortable with each other. And, uh, and Tony and I in particular enjoyed teasing each other quite a bit. So we're very comfortable <laughs> at this point. And it's this this podcast that's made that that's really built that relationship. And so we were careful to say that you do a, a, a podcast and we do it every um, every third Thursday. And people were interested in that. And I, I've been popping them the, the link, so some of them. Thank shout you. out to anybody who's listening live or in the future who came to PantheaCon. Thank you. We we really appreciate that, and and we hope to interact with you more. And and so and we so we missed you very much, Hercules. And I'm I'm really hoping one of these events we can we can bring um uh, this this whole little school that we've got going. We can bring us all together, and in, in particular to get to see you in person. That would be really awesome. 
So whether we go yeah. to the East Coast or, or there's a Theurgicon, um, uh, the person who did PantheaCon, she's she's quit now. This is the last PantheaCon, but she said she might do a Theurgicon again. You know, so if we if we bring anybody out and pay anybody's way, it would be you, right? So I'd love, I well, I, I really you. seriously hope to see you again, to see you in person too. Here I've been asked to do events uh, that are more local in New Jersey and New York City, so I committed to a few of those, and um, uh, hopefully I'll be in a position. Um, in terms of my time to come out uh, to a Theurgicon. That would be phenomenally awesome. And uh, I, even though I haven't met you guys in person, we've been talking now for quite a while. It's been well over a year, uh, maybe yeah. two years. Uh, and uh, I feel that I know you very well. So I'm really looking forward to meeting you face-to-face. Likewise, it would be fantastic to, to meet you finally. Oh, and um, regarding the sibling rivalry stuff that the Brandy was talking about, the way that that went down was, like I said, there were six points that we had. So I'd introduce a particular point, and I'd say, well, this is Brandy's suggestion, so if it falls flat, blame her. So I did that a couple of times. <laughs> and then we got to my suggestions, Brandy says, well, this was one of his ideas, so blame him. But it was all, it was all good-natured and fun. <laughs> um. Okay, awesome. We can do the same thing here, and uh, you can give a mini presentation since you've already given it. Uh, and we, we can address those uh, those points. And uh, at the end, when you suggest what people can do, uh, I have a new suggestion. Uh, it's actually something I've been working on for my entire life on and off, and now I decided, again, I'm in my 60s. Uh, there really isn't a lot of time to... Uh, do things uh, behind the scenes anymore. So I'm just going to try to do everything I can. Uh, so I will uh, introduce that officially on our show tonight. Okay. Can we go straight to that? I'm sorry? I want to hear what you're doing. I said, can we start with that? I, uh, you want to start with that? Doing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've always operated kind of out in the open, like uh, everyone's known. I've been attuned to Olympus since I was a small child, and I, I never hit any of that. But a lot of what I've done in life uh, in terms of my uh, Olympianism, Hellenismos um, meant something totally different if you're Greek. Hellenismos means um, Hellenic influence. So that was for our organizations like Hanek and Hepa which are very seeped in the Greek Orthodox Church. So when you, when you say Elenismos to Greek people, that's what they think of. They don't think of the, uh, the ancient uh, stuff, even though they're proud of it and uh, um, you know, they, they still perpetuate it. Um, they don't equate it with the, the word Elenismos. Uh, but I haven't really uh, resonated with the religion the way it's currently practiced um, for a number of reasons. Uh, chief of them being that um, when with people reconstructing, they cherry pick. So in antiquity, they did certain things that they don't do now, and I don't think that they should do them now either. Uh, but they became orthodox, many of them, um, in something that they constructed from antiquity that wasn't the way it was practiced in antiquity. So... Um, the ancients were much more fluid in their beliefs. They were much more open in their beliefs. They were, they were much more uh, comparative mythology and comparative religion in their beliefs uh, through their interpretatio, where they equated the gods with each other to begin dialogue and to begin trade and things like that. 
And when Hellenic influence spread throughout the Mediterranean, uh, it created a theosophy, another universalist type of uh, um, spiritualities. It didn't stick with the, 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 the Kafeon, even though a lot of people still resonated with the, the, the Kafeon and operated uh, with the, the, the Kafeon, other people uh, resonated with other cultural mythologies and they, they all kind of worked well together. Uh, so that's how I approached my Olympianism. So it was always, you know, try to find what the common ground is and then, you know, take it uh, from there. And throughout my life, I've experimented with different things, sometimes under different names. Like I was born with the name Panayotis Constantinos Venetis. Um, Panayotis kind of obliquely translates into Iraklis in terms of what it means, uh, which is glory to the queen of heaven. Uh, and uh, I've used that name more than I've used my birth name or any other nickname that got stuck to me or that I assumed throughout my life um, whenever I've done something uh, related to Olympus. So, like, for instance, um, oh, a long, long time ago, uh, I was in the Fellowship of Isis and also um, Selena Fox's Circle Network um, as Neos Olympos, and that was the first attempt to do something with this uh, synthesis. Uh, and it actually grew from, um, uh, I was the president of the Greek club in my high school, and it was a big and prestigious uh, high school. And uh, I kind of, like with the people that were there, uh, we turned it into our own version of Olympianism. So each of the uh, Olympians got a month and a holiday, uh, and, you know, we practiced that, and we, uh, I was able to take a lot of my ideas about heroic path and uh, implement them there. And then when I learned about uh, modern uh, paganism and I started exploring that, um, I started creating it within like a Wiccan type structure, I guess, you know, because Wicca was like a Christmas tree, uh, the way I saw it. And you could take any cultural trappings you want and decorate it any way you want. And it wouldn't do an injustice to the basic structure, um, which was like a lot of ancient Greek things, an orthopraxy rather than, you know, an orthodoxy. Uh, so I did that, and then um, for a while I started experimenting with other uh, cultures and doing things with other cultures, primarily in the uh, Arthurian Celtic and the Old Celtic and the Norse, because uh, that's where I had the biggest resonance. But I did things in other cultures uh, as well, including a science fiction fandom. And that's why Tony asked you if you like Star Trek, because I spent 10 years... <laughs> <laughs> using Star Trek to, you know, kind of experiment with this. And I was very wow. open and honest with everybody that I was doing a social experiment, that I didn't want to deal with things directly yet because people get upset when you, you know, uh, play with their beliefs. Uh, but I wanted to see if uh, something like what I had in mind would work. And it did. It worked, like, really phenomenally uh, well. Um, and so since that time, in different ways, I've been, like, implementing little bits, bits and pieces of it. Um, and... Uh, Theurgy was a very big piece. Um, and even though my, my knowledge of theurgy is nowhere near as extensive as yours, uh, the word means acting in a divine way or divine acts. And it was kind of like anchoring uh, the divinity within yourself or within a statue. And a lot of athleticism was to make yourself like a statue so you could better, you know, embody and express uh, the Olympians and so forth. So theurgy was very important, and you guys have helped me bring that dream, uh, you know, into reality, and I'll always be grateful for that. And the other is uh, theosophy, 
And uh, there I've had a lot more success with the new theosophies rather than the more tra traditional theosophic traditions. Although I do have a good relationship with uh, theosophic groups of all types, whether they be the neo-theosophists uh, that incorporate a lot of the um, uh, cosmology of the ancients in terms of space aliens and UFOs and planets and astrology and, and, and so forth. I have a really great relationship and I resonate with them because I can communicate the ancient stuff through the way they translate it. Uh, so that's been happening uh, far better than uh, um, I've ever expected. And um, now, again, I'm 61. I'm not going to live forever. And uh, um, even though I'm in much better shape than most people that I know, uh, I'm nowhere near as in shape as I was even like a decade ago, um, despite all my exercising and uh, trying to eat right and all that. So I'm trying to, at this point, uh, put all the pieces that I've kind of, played with separately together into a whole. And I've always called it from the beginning, Neos Olympus, which just basically means the new Olympus. So it's like, no, this isn't a recreation of the past, although we honor recreationists and reconstructionists and uh, will incorporate their wisdom and knowledge and in, in research, of course, uh, because uh, this stream started in antiquity or these streams started in antiquity, but we live now. And in the world now, what do we need of the ancient spirituality to not only help us uh, ride through the challenges ahead and emerge uh, triumphant, but also to make a positive difference in the world? So it wouldn't be something that necessarily had priests. It wouldn't be something that necessarily had like a hierarchical uh, initiatory structure um, or even um, magic in, in the way that it's uh, like commonly described but it would be a practical way based on the wisdom, not only of antiquity, but all the things that we've learned from antiquity um, and to try to apply those things uh, today. Like for instance, we don't want the democracy of ancient Athens because only rich landowners could vote and most of the people were um, either workmen or slaves. So we don't want that in today's world, but the experiment that started out there, that we want evolved and to take all the positive steps that's taken forward and to apply those, not to regress like we're currently doing. Uh, and also a republic uh, that was uh, in the West embodied by Rome. Rome was very terrible <laughs> in its day, um, as well as, you know, having brought us much, uh, you know, wisdom and uh, things that are practical and important in our, in our day and age. So it's kind of like not looking at let's preserve the past or let's resurrect the past, but let's learn from the past as people. And then the cultural spirituality becomes kind of like your personal preference or the preference of a bunch of people. Uh, so you get out of all those, you know, who's a real uh, Hellenist and who isn't a real Hellenist. Because I remember I was actually Greek and this stuff was in my culture and I grew up with it and I was totally seeped with it. Uh, and I remember when I was exploring the, the um, online uh, Hellenismos groups, uh, most of them reacted very violently to everything I said. And some of them even said that uh, um, being a real Greek may be the least likely to be um, involved in this because the Greeks betrayed the ancient religion. It's like, no, if you go down any street in Athens, those columns are still there. Uh, we haven't betrayed anything. It's just that they adopted a new heaven. Uh, and in, uh, the underworld remains the same. The uh, intermediate worlds of the Xotica uh, remain the same. It's just management changed. And uh, 
um, I've always seen uh, Jehovah as uh, Saturn anyway, as uh, Kronos. So it's the same story, just playing itself out as a new generation. Uh, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> and I'll gladly share it and gladly explain how I came to that uh, conclusion. But just because I think so, or there's a bunch of books that say I should think so, doesn't mean necessarily that it is so. But I can share what I think and, you know, interact with other people. Or they can share what they think. And we can each go agreeing uh, to disagree if we do. Uh, and that's okay. But what do we do about the, the works of the gods in this world? Because the gods have their spheres. Uh, and what I said before about us being pets to the gods, it seems to me, um, honestly, that a lot of people who are into quote-unquote paganism want to be pets of the gods. They want to be treated like you know, a puppy or a kitten, and, you know, loved by the gods and taken care of by the gods. But in antiquity, they knew better. And being related to the gods was not an easy thing, and it did not lead to an easy life. But the heroes of old... Uh, the ones who made Elysium, be they muscle men heroes or heroes of the mind or of the spirit, uh, they engaged their worlds fully and not always to their benefit, uh, but they did what they needed uh, to do. So, again, this is a, a very short summary of what I've spent the past uh, 50 plus years uh, playing with, but that's kind of like what I had in mind. And again, because I'm getting older, uh, it's like, if I'm not going to do something with this now, <laughs> when am I going to do something with it? So it's like, now's the time, and uh, wherever it leads, I'm going on that adventure. Yeah, absolutely. And I really, I understand that, being 63 myself, you know, that you, you really have to do what you're doing now. You know, and, and it's interesting. I I, um, I I want to come back to what you were doing, but just really fast about people wanting to be pets of the gods. We we are the 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 work of the gods on earth. It's not yeah. God's taking care of us, but we do that work ourselves, right? So yeah, exactly. Active agents, yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you, you talked about a lot of things. Is there a particular initiative that you're doing that we, we can hook into and support? Um, are you making a, a group itself? I mean, you've got a great name for it, right? The New, the new Olympus. Did I get that right? Yes, now so the new Olympus. Um, I, yeah. I, what we're doing now, actually, if we could build a theurgy part of that, and to show that what you said, which I, I believe is true with all my heart and all my soul, that we are the gods' hands here, or we are the gods in action here, whichever way you want to uh, look at it. But uh, I believe that with everything that I have, and I, I believed it for most of my life. Uh, if we can do that through theurgy together, we will have done a great thing. I'm anxious to hear Tony's thoughts too. Um, gosh, there's so much material. There's so much to unpack, but there were um, a couple of things that jumped out at me. And uh, and you're absolutely correct that people these days seem to think that there's only one way of worshiping the Greek gods. But when you go back to ancient times, there was no just one way of doing it. There was worship right. in the home. There was also worship in country areas, worship in the city. Um, worship in various fratries and guilds, and, and of course, worship would vary from, from, from city to city. The Greeks, and, and that enabled the Greeks to be fairly flexible, because underlying um, Greek religion is this idea of reciprocity, you know, being, being devoted to the gods, making offerings to them, and then, so by doing good things to the gods, the gods will then do good things for you. The, the Greeks were incredibly flexible, and the other thing is, 
a lot of people seem to think that you need animal sacrifice to, to worship the Greek gods. But the most popular offering made to the Greek gods in ancient times was a granular frankincense. That's mm-hmm. all common people thought. They would just throw a granular frankincense, venerate the gods um, the way that they'd been taught by their ancestors. Um, it was an incredibly conservative society insofar as you worship the gods the way your your father, your fathers and grandfathers um, worship them. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind. And I also agree with you that um, there are things that we cannot take from the ancient Greeks. As you pointed out, the, the Greeks may have given us democracy, but it was limited to right. Athenian citizens. I should say wealthy Athenian citizens. You had to have a wealthy mother and father who were Athenian citizens. If you were poor or a slave or a woman, you had no right to vote. You had you had no rights. So it was only the wealthy that, that could participate in the um in the democratic process and they had um, um a really good life they had lots of leisure time they could hang out in gymnasiums and philosophize so it was a very classless society where you had um people working hard to maintain your standard of living and i hope america doesn't wind up going the same way with us um working hard to support the one percent but um, I'm really excited by, by, by what you're doing. Um, I believe that, that, um, that the religion has to grow. It has to adapt to the time that we're in. I mean, we're recreating a tradition that was, that was destroyed by the Christians. But I personally believe that if the, Christian, if the tradition hadn't been destroyed, it would, have, it would have modified to today's world. Like, we wouldn't have public animal sacrifices you wouldn't have this sort of inequality that you had in ancient times. And so I, I think we can anticipate that, that, the, that the Greeks would have, would have grown, that the Greek religion would have grown, and it would be um, quite egalitarian. We can, we, can, we can stipulate that, and we can make it part of what we're doing. Um, you know, again, they made many mistakes, and just like we learned from our mistakes, and we try not to repeat the mistakes that we've made as we move uh, forward in life. And sometimes we do, but that's part of the process of growth. Uh, the same way, all these wonderful things the gods have given us in the dawn of time uh, as they played out through various uh, institutions that uh, defined our culture, uh, let's learn from them and let's move forward. Um, let's point out that um, you know, how does regressing in, into tyranny you know, help us uh, govern ourselves uh, better. Um, you know, just raise those issues and don't only leave them open to uh, folks that follow the Olympian way, but to everybody, because these are human things. We share the human condition. Uh, so when we're dealing with human things, you know, let, let's, let's work together. Yeah, um, the other thing I meant to mention was you talked about spheres of influence. That whole concept has changed heavily over time. These days, people tend to associate the god with a very narrow range of influence. But if you look at ancient times, the gods had a very broad range of influence. Using Athena as an example, she was a goddess of wisdom, a goddess of arts and crafts, and a goddess of strategic warfare. Yes. Um, They were individuals. Yeah, so basically, um, if you resonated with a particular goddess, and uh, or God, and you needed to have a particular 
area in your life addressed, then chances are you could work with the God of your choice. Whereas these days, it's a case of, oh, no, it's because, because you're working with, um, with warfare, for instance, you have to go with Aries. It's like, well, no, I don't want to go with Aries. I want to work with Athena. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the spheres of influence in ancient times were far broader than, than what they are now. So there was far more flexibility in the ancient approach um, than what there is today. Very true. Iraklis, for instance, uh, during the uh, uh, change of uh, from the old ways to the newer ways, uh, he was worshipped as a physician, uh, and he was syncretized into Saint Luke, the the glorious physician. Uh, and that's a very odd thing for most modern people who you know grew up with our modern um, pop cultural Hercules uh, legends. But it's true. Back then, he was primarily known as a doctor. Wow. Yeah. Um, I can imagine a lot of that harking. I actually mentioned this in the talk because the idea of war gods being healing gods came up, and I floated the idea of Sekhmet. Sekhmet, you know, mm-hmm. the lion headed goddess. Um, she was both a war goddess to the ancient Egyptians, but she was also a patroness of, of hospitals and, and doctors and healers. She had, she had this dual function. And in, in a way, it makes a lot of sense because um, on the battlefield, if one of your comrades is injured, you have to be able to tend to them. So connected to a, a warrior aspect, there has to be a healing aspect as well. When you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. So, I, I can, so from, from that standpoint, it, it makes perfect sense that, um, that Hercules should be thought of as um, as a physician. I wanted to um, add something to what uh, you were saying uh, before about offerings. Um, as uh, I've, I've announced it enough times, so I've shared this information, but um, a lot of people think I took the name uh, um, Iraklis as like an ego thing. Um, and uh, other than the fact that there's that uh, association with Iraklis because I'm a Lemnian and that's where the Argonauts stopped and he, that's the first place he appeared as a god uh, and uh, my ancestral land happens to be where he uh, um, landed and spoke to Philoctetes and all this other stuff, you know, all this personal stuff I have with it, it was actually a sacrifice. Um, it was uh, something called an onomati theou uh, in Greek, which means um, for the glory of the god. So it was a surrender of ego to do that. And this way I could be a better uh, um, embodiment or manifestation or hands or, you know, again, you can look at it in a variety of different philosophical ways. And I have uh, during my journey, uh, but this way I, I'd be like something with less levels between me and uh, that divine uh, energy. And I've always seen my deeds uh, and my words as my sacrifice, my ongoing uh, service uh, to the God. So this way, my entire life becomes a prayer. And again, I fall short uh, a lot. You know, the mortality uh, is not easy for anybody, including uh, incarnate gods, because the legends certainly show that uh, the Theban Hercules, uh, whose uh, life made up the core of uh, the modern legends that we have, uh, he did not live an easy life, nor did he uh, do always the wisest thing. In fact, uh, he's known for not often doing the wisest thing, but still, 
he freed the world of monsters and uh, um, he developed that solar path that uh, has been initiatic and open to anybody who can find it. And it's there in plain sight uh, throughout uh, history. So um, that's kind of like what I, what I see it. Um, I, I've always thought of ritual. And again, this is my personal opinion. Um, I've always thought of ritual kind of like, did you ever like when you were younger buy those books on dating, you know, like dating advice and dating etiquette and dating suggestions? Uh, I think everyone did. Okay. So I've um, always seen... Uh, I was awkward as a teenager like just about everyone else. Sure, we all were. We could all identify with it. I've always seen many of the rituals, um, beautiful or, or simple, is kind of like advice uh, for people to... Uh, it's like I've been married now for nearly 20 years with uh, Athena. And we still go out on dates and, you know, I still try to treat her uh, as, you know, as someone who's uh, um, above and beyond uh, everything. I don't always succeed at that, but I, I attempt to do it uh, all the time. Uh, so uh, during those times, we'll have like dating rituals, like I'll, I'll cook something and uh, we haven't done it in a while, but I, we used to like, like candles and all this other stuff. So I've always seen ritual like that, like uh, an attempt to, um, if not establish, maintain uh, a special relationship with the power with which you have uh, resonance, the power you seek, the power that uh, has sought you, um, is something like you don't need those things to have a strong relationship, but they're like icing on the cake. And they're, they're reminders of the specialness of the relationship. Like we had Valentine's Day recently uh, to remind us of that. And Athena's birthday is uh, tomorrow. So it's like a week after Valentine's Day. So I, can't, I can never forget it. Uh, but I don't know if I'm coming across clearly, but, but that's kind of like how I see ritual. Um, I'm actually inclined to agree with you because, because you're developing a relationship with the gods. So whether um, uh, it does sound crazy that dating advice would be appropriate, but it's a, it's a case of, you know, courting, getting to know someone and developing a stronger relationship um, ma makes perfect sense. Thank you. Brandy? I saw your Facebook post uh, two days uh Two days to my wife's birthday, happy birthday, which was really sweet. Um, but it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing offering, and sacrifice is a great way to put it to to dedicate yourself to the gods, gods like this. It's very telling too that we, the first thing that people think is, oh, you know, he's doing this for aggrandizement because many people do right step into it for that reason. So um, one of the things that you exemplify and pioneer and explain is how to how to make those kinds of offerings to the gods and to to um, embody them and embody their work. So I, I really appreciate that. And it's a, it's a wonderful sharing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, I'm honored to uh, have done so. And thank you for asking me to explain it. Uh, um, I've been doing it for so long and uh, very rarely talk about that aspect of it. So uh, uh, it's liberating. So I was planning on saying something a lot less a little later, but I'm glad that uh, things happened the way that they did. You've been really generous in sharing your uh, doing this podcast and um, promoting us, and you also do amazing work. And I really, uh, I really see you as Thanks. a creator in this conversation. So I really do want to hear more about it. Um, and and, uh, and you, you, you are also very modest. And I, I really just want to say, you know, you, you have a, a lot of knowledge, and you have this really important personal connection with the, the cultures that we're talking about that brings a perspective that none of us do. So it's really vital. 
Well, thank you. Um, are there any questions you have about uh, what I shared, or should we go back to uh, um, how people can um, use theurgy to make the world a better place? Because I, I, I really want to hear everything that you have to say. What do you want? <laughs> what do you want? Pick, pick a topic. <laughs> uh, I, well, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Greek, so that thing gets turned around on its head because uh, the way I see it as a, uh, a person who's been brainwashed by Greek is, you know, this is my home you know, on the airwaves, and you have been invited as my guest. So um, I know it confuses a lot of people, but that's how it translates in my mind. So um, as my guests, you know, I, I have to make sure that uh, you are well uh, tended to. So uh, that's why I run my podcasts the way I run them. So it's not that I ever run out of anything to say or I don't have an opinion that I can share, but, but it's just that uh, this is my show and you are my guests. So uh, um, the focus should be on you. <laughs> So we have a, a table full of topics that are like um like like mezes, right? Like little shareables. Okay, if if we went off the rails in a direction you didn't want to go to, you'd rein us back, I'm sure. Yeah. Well we have like we have we have time and if something is uh like uh, sensitive, a lot of people know. I'm, on the political show, people say all sorts of things that, uh, um, you know, I can understand where they're coming from, but they're not really what I'd like in the parameters of what we're discussing. But anyway, onwards, I talk to them afterwards and, you know, tell them that we don't alienate people that, uh, um, you know, like even though I'm, I'm very strongly democratic and, you know, I lean toward the left, uh, I'm, I'm more independent and currently I'm making a political stand and that's why I've gotten involved like as a Democrat. Uh, but I welcome Republicans and some of the best guests I've had on the show have been people who don't agree with me about hardly anything. Um, and uh, one guest I have, he's a very conservative Republican. He has a conservative Republican show and uh, he's very into the Abrahamic uh, faith. Uh, but it turns out that uh, he was exposed to theosophy, an ascensionist book. So even though we have almost nothing in common, um, we started talking about uh, spiritual evolution. And there we speak the common language. And all of a sudden, the political uh, stuff and even the religious stuff became meaningless. And we found ways of doing things together despite them, you know, where it, it just became unimportant all of a sudden, whether there was one God or many and uh, uh, whether uh, my view or his view of the country was the right one. Th that was all bypassed because we found the common language of the spiritual evolution. So uh, I try to find that common ground with all my guests, even if on the surface we don't agree, because uh, we're human. We share the same human condition. We're living in the here and now, so we've been programmed a lot of the same way. So there is always something that we can you know, connect with. And even if we just work on that thing, it'll, it'll move humanity forward, I believe, and, and create a better world for everybody. Uh, and then you can go back to arguing over whose politics is right and whose religion's right uh, in our leisure time over coffee. <laughs> so. 
Well, I'll tell you what, um, if, if, uh, Tony, if you want to talk some about the, the things that you thought were important to bring people, maybe not all your um, six points, but just like, like pick one and, and talk about something that you think is really important for people to know. Um, I also, then I can follow that up with the, the um, piece I didn't actually deliver at Anthiacon um, that, that directs people to what they can do next. So maybe we could do that. And if you didn't deliver it at Pantheacon, you could deliver it here if you'd like. Yeah, that's that was what I was thinking. I sort of cut to the chase, but I had some specific things to say, so um, we can do that. Oh, awesome! I, I to we to tell me. We have like uh, we have uh, an hour and fifteen minutes, I believe. Um, so why don't Tony? How much time will you need to do your piece? Um. I don't know if there's much point in covering everything. It's um, up to you. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to find my notes. But um, the the stuff that I was um, that I thought would be most interesting, is the um, is the stuff on the coronavirus. Okay, and Brandy, how much and, time do you need to do your piece? But it be maybe um, five or ten minutes, not not incredibly long, but it'll probably spark both of those things will probably spark conversation. Okay, so how about we split the time in half, um, and uh, we'll let uh, uh, Tony continue. So, um, and in around uh, twenty minutes, we'll take a brief break, and then we'll come back, and you can start. Okay. Well, what I had prepared was actually a, a, an outline of the coronavirus, but I, I don't know whether people are familiar with it or not. I, I talked about where it supposedly started and how it's transmitted and, um, and how um, the, the way you manage it is basically the same way that you manage the common cold. You know, the symptoms manifest as either fever, cough, shortness of breath, so... Um, you know, they, they recommend that you wash your hands thoroughly, keep your hands and fingers away from your eyes, nose and mouth, avoid contact with people who are infected, and you treat the infection the same way as you would a cold, get plenty of rest, drink fluids. So I, I basically gave background on the coronavirus, um, talked about how you address the symptoms, but then um, I started talking about the um, um, plagues in general. So I wound up talking about the earliest account that we have of disease in Greek literature appears in the opening episode of Homer's Iliad, um, which harks back to the 8th century BCE. So Agamemnon tried to rescue, sorry, to ransom his captured daughter, and he insulted the priest Chrysis as punishment the god Apollo set a plague upon the Greek army. And according to Homer, at the onset of the plague... Apollo only shot his arrows at mules and dogs in the camp and then later on started to target the Greek soldiers themselves. So Homer describes a highly communicable disease with acute fever, sudden onset and rapidly fatal. And so it was perfect for attacking an army. Um, and the way that the Greeks appeased Apollo was, was, was with sacrifices and the return of Agamemnon's daughter. And so then they set about cleansing the camp by throwing out defilements. So that suggests that there was severe dysentery, which was exacerbated by battlefield conditions. And I pointed out that in mythology, the arrows of Apollo 
were often tied in with um with the rapid onset of of disease and um yeah. and that Apollo could not only cause disease but he could heal it as well and um so quite often in in actually in Homer's Iliad he was referred to as Apollo Smintheus or Apollo the mouse god um because the Greeks associated the, the Greeks thought of mice as being vectors of disease and if you think about it the bubonic plague was actually mm-hmm. spread by fleas by by um by uh microorganisms on fleas which which were on rats so it's very easy to draw an association between some forms of plague and um and 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 plague um in this case they're actually thinking that the coronavirus could have started off with either the consumption of snakes or the consumption of bats bats was actually what gave rise to the um the Ebola virus in in Africa apparently then there's the um conspiracy theory that it was um genetically engineered in the Wuhan virology lab which is supposed to be yeah which is actually supposed to be a bioweapons division so the conclusion that i came to is you wouldn't limit it to apollo sintheos because it probably it, it definitely not transmitted by mice or rats so just pray to Apollo in general so it was basically a, a long-winded way of saying that if you want to combat the coronavirus um, to follow the same protocols that everyone else is following but pray to Apollo as well so that 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 was the whole point and I just thought it was a nice way to tie in um, ancient Greek literature with, and show that it's still relevant in yes. the 21st century that that is awesome, and uh, by attuning yourself to Apollo and uh, his energies, um, it it does evoke within you, if you allow it to, um, healing. So it helps your body to yes. heal. And again, Apollo is 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 perfect for for so many things. He's um he's a god of of, of music as well. He was the, the most the most Greek of of all the gods. He's also the god that you call on for protection of young boys. Um, when we talked about children in cages, I, I mentioned that you call on Apollo to, to protect the young boys and call on Artemis to, to protect the young girls. So, Girl. again, the, the whole spheres of influence thing, you know, Apollo is good for, for so many things. Whereas and, uh, a lot of modern practitioners would probably think, well, if we're using Apollo for play, we can't use him for young boys or, or vice versa. So no, it's perfectly good for everything. That's like saying you can't ask uh, your father if you're a child to get you a glass of water because that's like, that's something mothers do. Yeah, uh, you both before, but that's the type of logic. Uh, and I think it came about during the Victorian era when they were, uh, you know, basically taking the old Greek myths and. Uh, um, changing them to be uh, more relevant and appealing to their uh, culture, um, they probably did that uh, to simplify uh, how people understood the gods uh, and uh, also to um, kind of limit them um, in the light of uh, monotheistic thought because one god can do everything, whereas uh, these guys can only do a limited number of things and uh, you, you know, uh, you go to them for those things and those things only rather than for a wide range of things that they represent or that they could represent. I actually think that you're really onto something by limiting the gods. You're 
taking away from their divinity, from their power. So they're basically saying the Judeo-Christian God is so much superior because he's good for everything. And so so Apollo is only good for the one thing. Um, you know, um, Hermes is good for travel and, and nothing else. And um, Athena is a goddess of wisdom and nothing else, whereas it, it's not true. They had very broad ranges of influence. And I, I think it's very wrong to try to limit the gods. And even if you study one god, you discover all these, these things. Like, for instance, a lot of people don't know that the cornucopia has strong associations with Heraclius. Uh, uh, and that's something that most people don't uh, identify with the god. Also, uh, Hermes and Heraclius uh, seem merged uh, for a while because uh, not only was uh, Hercules later with the Romans and a little bit earlier with some Greeks a god of commerce, uh, but also, Heraclis was the image on a herm uh, in many places. And I believe it's even, I don't remember exactly where, but it was on a coin of Heraclis as a herm. So making him a, a deity of boundaries. And in, in the context of a larger lore, it, it makes sense. But most people have a difficult time because, no, Hermes is the herm. You know, Hercules can't be the herm. And Hermes is the god of commerce. Uh, Hercules can't be the god of co- commerce because he's a, you know, he's a, he's a bodybuilding brute. You know, <laughs> what does that have to do with commerce? Yeah. So it, it's a limited way of, of thinking about uh, these uh, intelligences that live within us and without us and that, you know, have created this whole thing. And, and as I and yeah, pointed out before, thing. there was... I'm sorry. I was just going to quickly say, as I pointed out before, there's no one way of... of um, there's no one Greek religion. There, there are all sorts of variants on it. So you may well have had... Um, one particular group that, that worships Heracles one way and another group that, that, that worships right. Hermes, Hermes another way. So there can, there can be all sorts of overlaps. Um, the, the Greeks are incredibly flexible, and we have to be mindful of that whenever we deal with them. Sorry, I, Good I point. cut you off, Brandy. I'm really sorry. Oh, no, actually, it was your turn, um, but I, I, I saw this go by, and I said, one of the things that um, Apollonius and I have been talking about is this idea that each of the Olympians is the start of a chain of being a henad that um, that descends into incarnation, and so each one of these Olympians um, really in, encompasses the universe, encompasses all the aspects mm-hmm. of divinity in that one divinity. Um, but, but you get choices or you get, you know, you can connect to um, the, the world through Athena um, and then connect to all the, the um, aspects of, of divinity through Athena. Uh, and another way to say it is that all of the Henads are, are um, uh, incorporated in each other. Uh, and I, I think um, there, there's a, an idea of the, in Tantra, the Ishtadeva, which is sort of the same thing. You have a, a guiding deity, and through that guiding deity, that's the lens to which you gain access to all the all the insights of divinity, while recognizing that there are other other aspects as well. So that's the um, that that in, increases the tolerance of, of polytheism, right? So um, I think it's it's true. And, and then um, we have this sort of, as you said, Victorian idea that there is a there is a, a collection, and so you have to parse out 
which uh, which deities in the collection belong to what? There's the god of love. There's the or the goddess of love and the the god of war and the goddess of wisdom. Um, and and it makes it much easier to to understand. So it really, if you try to understand the idea of the the patron god or the leader god, um, it kind of starts to open your mind to a different way of looking at at the world. Um, and and so I, I think that's a very important concept to continue to talk about. Oh, indeed. And I'll give an example of what you said that's from modern theosophy. In modern theosophy, um, Hercules with uh, Amazonia, um, who I've always equated with Athena, are the god, the creator and creatress of our solar system and uh, beyond. Uh, They're considered to be Elohim. Now, Elohim is one of these tricky words. Like in English, we have Lord. And Lord can mean a human Lord. It can mean a divine Lord. Uh, The Greek word archon, and now there's a lot of nonsense about archons (laughs) floating around in popular culture. Archon means exactly the same thing. It just means uh, Lord, the leader. And Elohim is uh, a term that means the same thing, too. It's a plural term. It can be used as a singular because that happens in Greek, too. You, you have people talking about themselves in the plural and like atharebusa. Um, but it, it means uh, Lord. Uh, it means someone who's the boss, someone who's in charge. In uh, antiquity, uh, before kakodemonis became all demonis, uh, angel just meant the messenger. So any spirit that messengered was an angel. It, it wasn't necessarily a particular class of beings, nor were daemonists, which were in-between beings, and could be kakodemonists, uh, which is bad daemonists, or agathodemonists, uh, which is kind of like innocent, pure daemonists. Um, but these words came to mean something very different in time. But in neo-theosophy, there are seven or 14 Elohim. Um, and you can count them either as uh, masculine and feminine polarities, in which case there'd be 14, or seven uh, distinct uh, ones that are both uh, masculine and feminine. Uh, but Hercules, Athena are the creators, they're the demiurges. And this isn't a new theosophical idea. You could find it as far back as Nonus, you know, toward late antiquity in his Dionysiaca. So uh, that's one of the, like, you know, threads that went underground with the golden threads that you talk about in your book. And, you know, it's popping up again. And uh, what I'm always surprised about is finding this stuff in, like, channel theosophical literature, which is kind of like, I guess, my uh, spiritual hobby <laughs> is, has been following that for a large part of my life. Because there's a lot of ancient things in there. And the writing is not always polished. And it's uh, a little repetitive. And some of it's murky. But then again, so is some of the old theosophical uh, writings as well. So um, in seeking the highest, I, I, for my particular uh, divine, um, I looked in other cultures. And it was like playing hide and seek for a while. And I found him and her there. Uh, and then in my own life, I found them within my own psyche in terms of my inner you know, patterns beyond the cultural uh, conditioning. Uh, and now in the cosmic theosophical stuff, which is now all that, you know, without our space aliens that the contactees uh, um, have given us and the I am movement uh, has given us, there's a lot of this ancient war that is really so obscure that you'd have to be somebody who's really interested in it to find it. 
And it's there in this literature, and it's really amazing. So it's kind of like discovering what Dion Fortune uh, discovered, that there seems to be like, uh, you know, something playing this on some level of consciousness. And once you find yourself there, it's like what you're listening to on this cosmic uh, radio. And um, uh, I forget what his name is. I used to know him. I used to go to his uh, Fortean meetings in New York uh, decades ago. Uh, John Keel, he wrote a book called Disneyland of the Gods. Uh, where at the end, he also compares it to some phonograph that's like playing the same song uh, since the dawn of time, and that some people just happen to tap into it. And in her cosmic doctrines, a lot of this is, is basically old and new theosophy, uh, her presentation of it. So she tuned into the station and got it. And it's comforting in a way, because you know that this stuff can't really be lost. They could burn down as many libraries um, as uh, they care to. And even though that's a loss to the heritage of humanity, all you need is to be able to find and tune into that station and then all that stuff uh, you know, can come back. And sorry about that. I went off on a rant. <laughs> but, uh, no, that was really good. I, I love your rants. Thanks. I do too. And it's, it is comforting. And it's a, it's another topic that I think that you should write up because that, that was fascinating. Thank you. I, I will add that to my list of things I need to write. And uh, you, you, there isn't a lot on it, so I should really write something about it. So the coronavirus, um, my wife is much more into current things th than I am. So she keeps me apprised, you know, like daily on what's going on in the world, you know. Um, and uh, so she's been um, telling me a lot of the same things that uh, you shared, uh, Tony. And again, there's a conspiracy theory uh, because there happens to be, I believe, within 20 or 30 miles, a facility where they conduct uh, you know, genetic uh, research and they have uh, all sorts of uh, um things that can kill people in mass uh, through disease. So that I know that the, yeah, you, she researched that. that has yeah, it's the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the thing is that in order to come up with antidotes for viruses, you have to then create them first. Yes. So this is the, the conspiracy theory is that every time someone leaves the lab, they risk taking a virus into the outside world. So I can imagine them detoxing and, and showering and, and doing everything to, to rid themselves of any viruses. But yeah, every time you do it, there's a little chance of, of, of something getting out. Yeah, the yes. other safe way would be to, to have a team go in there, say for six months at a time, they basically stay in there, don't leave. But who's going to sign up for that? You want to have a normal life. So, um, and, yeah, the, so the theory is that one of these viruses escaped. And it's not the, the first such theory that I heard. I heard one um, years ago that the AIDS virus was um, a, um, a military experiment where they spliced two viruses together. I've heard that again, as well. You know, I, yeah, and again, you know, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I, I file things like that away in the back of my mind. And things which sound absolutely crazy when you first, um, as time goes on, they start to sound more and more plausible. There, um, one of the things that concerns me, and again, I'm not an authority on this, but um, I, I've heard from my wife and from other people, and then I looked into it myself, is that uh, funding has been cut, and uh, there have been a lot of uh, 
uh, drawbacks to the uh, power and function of the CDC. So uh, our nation where we're currently living is no longer in a position to take immediate or even um, effective action uh, if something like this comes to our shore. I know it's 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 absolutely insane. Um, I'm just trying to find. I've I've got it here somewhere. Uh, where is it? Um, yeah, that's the point that Tony made yeah, um, too during his yeah, presentation. Pre- yeah, pre- President Trump's proposed 2021 budget calls for a drastic 16% cut to funding for the Centers of Disease Control and a 10% overall reduction to the Department of Health and Human Services funding, according to the Washington Post. So critics are saying that that could prevent our preparedness for a pandemic at home. So it's almost like they're hoping that countries overseas do all the research and we can just implement it here. There was a time when America was always on the cutting edge. Yes. We, we were world leaders in everything. But, you know, if you cut funding, it's, it, it's not going to happen. This is a really serious pandemic. It's spreading very, very quickly. And for us to cut funding to the CDC makes no sense at all. And there's so much mis- – you cannot trust the Chinese. You, you know that the, it's, the situation is much worse than what the Chinese are letting on. I don't know how much worse. There are all sorts of um, videos coming out of China that, that suggest that it is, it, it's absolutely disastrous over there and the Chinese aren't letting on. I, I honestly don't know what to believe. There, there is uh, um, the reaction was very quick and it seemed very extreme, which was odd because I, I'd never seen any type of reporting like this uh, in reaction to uh, this type of uh, you know, to a flu. Um, and I'm sorry. The, the, the whistleblowers were punished. That the people yeah. who who first alerted the world to what was happening. And there was one activist who actually came out and spoke out against the way the, the Chinese government was handling things. He was on the run um, for a while, and he's just been captured. So I don't know what's going to happen to him. Um, I, I, I don't think it's going to be very good. But, um, and and some of that, too, is, um, people... is, it, yeah, is, is the Chinese government um, and Chinese culture in, in saving face, too. So um, yeah. I, I know that that that'll happen in in any any kind of instance where it seems that um, someone is holding the Chinese government up to ridicule. But I, I also wanted to come back to something you said, Tony, because you made a point of, of talking about how diseases jump from animals to to people. And I, I recall to my mind that you yourself are vegetarian. I think it's part of your um, your theurgic practice to to honor animals. And I wondered if you had something you know that you wanted to art- articulate about that around this virus in particular. Well, basically, um, SARS and this current virus supposedly started off at a wet market. And a wet market is, they they call it the Wuhan seafood market, but it actually has all sorts of foods there. So some of the foods are already dead. There are also live animals being sold, being sold, and they're they're butchered right there in front of you. And the thing is that, you know, they're, they're butchered, the blood flows everywhere. And at the end of the day, they just hose down the area. Um, there's no bleach. There's there's nothing used to take care of any sorts of disease. And um, so they, they were even killing exotic animals there. One thing that really upset me at the time was koalas, because at the time we had the, the bushfires in Australia, 
and koalas are being killed left, right, and center by bushfires. And then we hear about koalas at the Wuhan market actually being served at Chinese tables, which is really, really upsetting to me because they're they're cute little buggers. They're so gorgeous. (laughs) They, they, They deserve to be treated well. So at the moment they've they've shut down all these markets, but it's it's a it's a Chinese tradition, and it, it's a tradition that really has to be brought to an end because it's 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 unsanitary, it causes disease. Um, another reason why disease spreads very quickly in China is because of the way they eat. So typically you'll have a whole family gathered around a large, each have a small bowl of rice, and they dip their chopsticks into the dish at the center of the table, eat, eat whatever meat they, 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 they have off their chopsticks, have a little bit of rice, and then they dip their chopsticks back into that main bowl. So you've got bits of saliva going into that main bowl. So if anyone has anything, it's going to spread through the whole family. And to me, it's a very simple problem to address. All you need is a serving spoon. You have a serving spoon in the dish and you just use that so people put bits of meat or fish or whatever or tofu into their bowls of rice. But the Chinese won't do it. It's like they have this tradition. They'll, they'll, wear, they'll wear masks, but they don't seem to want to do anything else. They went into panic mode. Um, dogs were being thrown out of windows and killed when the virus first started. They thought um, there was a possibility of, of, of family pets infecting them. Uh, it's just mass panic. And like I said, I'm, I'm sure the situation is much worse than what we're being told. But um, it almost feels like it could be karmic because of the suffering that they impose on animals. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just my gut feeling. I can't prove it. But it, it, it's not right that animals should suffer like that. No, definitely not. Animals are intelligent beings with uh, souls the same that uh, we have. And anybody who's ever had an animal in their life uh, can tell you that. So it's not a deep philosophical question that needs to be uh, wrestled with. Um, so, yeah, we should protect them. And, and thanks to the magic of YouTube, um, we can see it's not just the ordinary animals, you know, the usual pets, dogs and cats. People have had calves as pets, chickens. Um, yes. It's possible to have a relationship with, with just about anything. They, they, they all have feelings. They all have intelligence. Um, bees. They're, they're, My favorite really example is bees. difference between animals and us. I've yeah. had an affinity. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say I'm 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 sort of uncomfortable criticizing the culture, but I I take some of your points. And my favorite example is um you have a box of forty thousand stinging insects and bond with it, and beekeepers bond really hard with our bees. I want to tell you, so it is really true that you can bond to anything. Yeah, uh, it's true about bees. When I was uh, a kid, bees seemed very attuned to me. So they used to kind of like land on my finger and they wouldn't bite me or anything. And uh, if a bee was stuck at a window, um, I would put my finger there and the bee would just go on my finger and I'd open the door and let the bee uh, out. So that hasn't happened in a very long time. But I started off uh, life with that and it lasted for a while until it was no longer true. 
and snails. I had pet snails as a kid. Uh, my parents had gotten snails from the um, fish market, and uh, I took a couple of them out, and I made them my pets. And uh, after a while, they recognized me so they wouldn't retreat into their shells, and I could hold a piece of lettuce, and they would eat it. You know, So they had a lot more uh, intelligence than people credit them uh, with having. Now, do you guys want to take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll start with Brandy? Sure. Okay, let me find something nice. Um, how about uh, Cauldron Born by Dave the Bard? I play that one quite a lot. Let me just find it here. And that gives us seven minutes until we come back. The Cauldron Born, here we are, okay. We'll be back Congrats in seven minutes. Seven. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye.
searching for patterns and looking for signs. Your life of construction, one day you will see. And welcome back to Pride of Olympus. I am your host and moderator, Hercules Invictus. And today we have our Theurgy Forum with panelists Tony Merzliki and Brandy Williams. And uh, before I give the floor to Brandy, uh, I wanted to say that I had a revelation during our song break. Uh, I realized that my um, going with the Greek tradition of guests and a host was very similar to um, wearing a mask and then eating your rice, uh, what do you call it, uh, common chopsticks. 
so <laughs> in order to um, get rid of uh, the problems that my acting this way uh, creates and making my um, guests uh, uncomfortable, um, how about if uh, between shows we come up with what we want to cover during the show, uh, and then my job would basically be to ask questions uh, uh, occasionally, what questions need to be asked, and keep it moving so that we convey all the information we'd like to convey in whatever time we have. How does that sound? That's great. And you know you already do that, right? I mean, you, you check with us and say, hey, would you like, what would you like to talk about? So I've, I've always felt very included there. Um, I think the, that it's more like including you more was where I was headed. You, you all, always add such um, interesting and important things. Um, for example, you talked tonight about how um, the Greeks have held on to an ancient culture and that Christianity has been folded into Greek culture. So you exemplify this um, ability to, to harmonize pagan and Christian, which is something that um, we need in this world. So I'd like to just hear a lot more from you. Thank you. Okay, I will, I, I will speak uh, more. Um, and now I pass uh, the baton to you, and uh, I would like to hear you speak because uh, – um, you're, I love your books. Uh, the first book I read of yours was uh, years ago, the, uh, the Ecstatic Ritual book. <laughs> and uh, when I read uh, the For the Love of the Gods, I didn't realize that you were the same person until you had mentioned it on one of the podcasts uh, and that Llewellyn had uh, reissued it. Or I, I don't know if it was Llewellyn, uh, but I uh, remember. It was, in a, it was a Manian, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, I have a funny story about love of the gods, actually. So, so some okay. a, a woman came to to one of my talks at PantheaCon, and afterwards she said, "Okay, this has been driving me nuts. There's a book I know, and um, and I can't remember what this book was. It was a book which like started in in the ancient times, and it told you history, but it also told you stories. And I pulled out the, my book and I said, "Was it this one?" And she said, "Oh my gosh, yes." <laughs> I said, would you like a copy? You know, so <laughs> that was that was awesome. So I'm glad I'm glad um, uh, a few people read it actually. Well, it, it's our favorite book at the Living uh, Theurgy Group that we started uh, out in uh, Branchville, New Jersey. Uh, now we've moved on to you know uh, uh, more Age of Heroes type of stuff, and uh, we're doing like political things and, and so forth. But uh, we're still uh, meeting uh, once a month uh, for theurgy. And uh, that's the favorite book. That made theurgy non-abstract and real to everybody in that group. And if we ever start the talking to people about theurgy on the phone, and whenever everybody's ready, because everybody said yes to it, um, we'll start uh, scheduling that periodically as well. But that's like the favorite uh, for everybody. Well, you know, just tell me how many copies you want, and I'll send them to you, because I, I own the whole Llewellyn print run now. So. <laughs> and I've got, you know, a bunch of books in my basement, so I'll send them to well, anybody who wants them, so, so let me know. <laughs> I'm doing talks on theurgy and stuff like that, so maybe I could sell some for you, you know, this way. Uh, oh, there you go. And uh, Tony, um, I'll share one story again before I, get, I, I keep taking the baton back from Brandy. Um you're part of the the legendary there too, because uh, one of my uh, um, most learned uh, students in that uh, theater group, uh, her husband ordered your book Hellenismos the first time it was advertised, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't come out uh, when it was advertised. Uh, so this caused her all sorts of uh, distress because she was a fan of yours. 
so whenever I'm meeting school, I was like, find out why that book is when that book is coming out. Find out what the book's coming out. And she was so happy when I told her that uh, Luella was releasing, and I showed her the uh, advanced copy that I received. Yeah, got. And that um, all I can, all I can really say was held up because of legal reasons. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I should really be saying too much more than that. But um, Llewellyn wanted it to come out four year, four or five years ago. Um, but you know they couldn't. So it's the way it goes. Well, I'm glad it finally well, came out. It's a treasure for yeah. everybody who has it. And now and it's, yeah, it's wonderful. You. And it's a wonderful book, Tony, and and also your your first first book, Greco Egyptian Magic. It's uh those are those are source works for everyone, um, yeah. and so thank you so much for doing that work. And I I will tell you one more story. Um, uh, Apollonius is not here. He's also written under Bruce McLennan and under John Opsipaeus. There was a wonderful um, um, group at at PantheaCon Pandemos, and they had a room that they had turned into a temple, and they had statues of the Olympians, and they had the uh, little plastic boxes where each of them had been turned into a shrine to each of the Olympians, and they were very well educated. Wow. We went and uh, looked through the, their stack of books in the corner, and they had Tony, um, they had they had um, uh, Bruce's books, and a ton of a ton of a ancient books. And I went and gave them a copy of mine. So I walked in that suite with John, um, and they one of the women looked up and went, "Are you John Opsipaeus?" And he said, oh, um, yes. And they went, everyone, everyone, John is here. And he was like mobbed by people. He said it was the first time in his life that that had ever happened. <laughs> so so even for us, like history geeks, right, um, there is an audience out there that will love it when you walk in the room. So I was, I was so happy to see him get the, uh, the attention he deserved. So he, got, he got the wrong. I'm a fan of your, your books as well, Brandy. Thank you so much for writing them. You know, I, I got my first book of yours in the in the early 90s, um, Ecstatic okay. Ritual. And um, so that's when I first became aware of you. So you've been part of my life now for <laughs> um, like almost 30 years. So that's really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and John, um, John Opsipaeus, he, he began writing about theurgy in the early 90s. Um, I think he started with the bulletin board, but certainly was one of the very first um, um, uh, websites on follow. And that was where I first became um, exposed to these concepts, right? So we really owe him all, we all owe him a lot. He's He was the first person, I think, in the contemporary world to start writing, and he's still with us, so this is awesome. Actually, can I just for a second put in a plug no. for him? He did a um, he did a presentation at PantheaCon on Pleson, and what he's doing right now, he's he. I, I didn't get a chance to to see it. Um, Tony, did you get a chance to go to his photo? I I did. I actually found it um very informative. D Denny Sargent was there as well. Um, I I, I got to confess, I I wasn't that knowledgeable on Plethon, but he's certainly um an amazing figure who um um I, I should be looking more into. But um, uh, and for the first time, um. Bruce actually used a PowerPoint presentation, which which really enhanced the talk. I'm a I'm a great believer in using um, audio visual or visual aids, and uh, it was it was a great. I'm so glad I went to it. 
the the specific thing, and I, I have a little story about Platon in um, in Love of the Gods. So if anybody has that, you can go zip over and read the few paragraphs I've got on him. The thing that's really exciting to me is that, um, um, let's say Apollonius has has collected the material that is still available about his work. He was really arguably the first neo-pagan um, and, and had built a whole ritual system. So um, Apollonius is working on uh, a book about his, his life and work, bringing his rituals into into the contemporary era. And I said, you were bringing him back the way you brought back Hypatia. And he said he uh-huh. felt that this really was his work. That was what that was what he was called to do. So it's the next thing that he's focusing on. So the next time we have him on with us, we should get him to talk more about Plethon and about uh, about his work and encourage him in the writing because it's a it's difficult and lonely as we all know to to do these books, right? So, but it's very very important. So I'm 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 thrilled that he's he's working on on Plethon in particular. And Llewellyn published the book on uh, Grigoris uh, Plethon. Uh, I was looking. I saw it when I came I came across it in the catalog rather. Uh, not too long ago. I don't know if it uh, was published before, if they're publishing it soon, uh, but there was a book about Platon there. Oh, okay. I'll look it up. It might be Bruce's. <laughs> no, it's not Bruce's. Bruce is working on his. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is awesome. We're, we're we have a wonderful bunch of uh, people here. Um, and uh, um, you know, as I was telling uh, Tony, like I'm comfortable with it, even if just two of us, uh, if we can't get a bunch of people together, because always uh, something of great value and some great insights emerge from the conversation. And did I see that you were writing a book, um, Hercules? I saw something. Yes, uh, I felt comfortable to announce that, and actually. Uh, um, uh, I, I announced on the air a couple of times. Uh, one of the things I don't see anything on, um, Scott Cunningham wrote something about it, but it, it was very superficial, the knowledge that he was, uh, that he had given about it. Uh, but uh, kind of like, I guess you can call it uh, Greek uh, shamanism or Olympian shamanism. And uh, Burkett wrote uh, some of the best stuff on that. But there's an entire underworld that survives from the mythology that can be explored shamanically. Uh, and dream is the kingdom between uh, our waking world and the underworld. Um, and uh, so I've spent years uh, playing with that. Um, so I don't see anything on it. So I figured that's something I could share that, you know, there really isn't anything on that except for, again, just some short uh, outlining type stuff. So I've started to um, like focus on that in my dreams at night because I work on my dreams almost every day. Um, and I have most of my dream journals since childhood. Some of them got lost or destroyed over the many moves that my uh, 60 plus years uh, entailed. Uh, but I have a lot of the dreams that I've dreamt in this life. So um, I'm locating them. I'm going through the notebooks. Uh, I'm going through my notes on the uh, mythology. Uh, I'm uh, re-experiencing some of the internal uh, states that uh, uh, I've been through. And I actually published a couple of short pieces in those uh, anthologies uh, that, uh, that I was published in. Uh, so I'm going to expand upon those as well. So I'm giving myself a year to, to pull all this together, but I've officially started that uh, road and I'm on it. 
that's very wise. <laughs> a year is a very good good uh, amount of time to give yourself. Oh, I can't wait to read it. So it's so exciting. Thanks. I'll, I will send you a pre, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, before it comes out. I'll send you a copy <laughs> and get your uh, thoughts on it. Thank you. Yeah, I'd be happy to be a beta reader for you. And so I can dedicate the book to you guys. That would be awesome, too. <laughs> no, no, no. No, your first book you dedicate to your wife. <laughs> oh, my wife would dedicate my, my entire life. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's amazing. I, this is my third marriage, by the way. Uh, so it took me a few tries to, to get it right. But uh, I was telling my wife the other day that, uh, you know, despite all the challenges that we face living in the here and now and being who and how we are, um, I've never felt like I belonged anywhere before, you know, and that I, I feel like I belong, you know, just being with her, uh, you know, wherever we happen to be, uh, you know, is I feel like I've arrived someplace, you know, and uh, that's uh, that's was something that was very alien to me for my entire life. I always felt like I somehow didn't fit into all this, you know, didn't uh, um, because of my work with dreams since childhood, waking reality is in some ways dreamlike as well. Um, and like we're surrounded, everything is a product of imagination. We're not living in the natural world at all. We're living in imaginary uh, structures and everything from the paint on our walls to the desk to the telephone to the computer. It, it's a product of imagination that we somehow collage together um, and function through. So uh, waking reality never seemed quite real. But uh, since she's come into my life, at least I feel like I have a place in this waking reality. That's lovely. Thank you. Now, you um, had a presentation that you were to give and you didn't get to it. Do we have time to get to it now? Because I'd love to hear it. Oh, sure. And um, it's, it, it follows on the work that I did for Llewellyn. So Llewellyn just brought out a book called The Complete Book of Ceremonial Magic, which is an anthology uh, with 12, I think, contributors. And I wrote what they're calling the epilogue, which is about the future of magic. And so in, in doing that, I did a, a little bit of the presentation at, um, at Pantheacon on the panel. I went to the, the conclusion. But in, in doing this, this presentation, in doing this piece on the future of magic, I, I studied future studies. And I realized that one of the things that happens is that people today don't feel that we have a future, especially the, the younger folk will just say, you know, you've taken the future from me. And, it, and there's a loss of hope. And I thought it was very, very important for us to bring hope back to people and to bring yeah. the sense of power back to people. So I have, um, I have a, a, a set of thoughts about that, that we need to take back the future. The powerful convince us that they own the future. And one of the ways to, that they convince us is to say that they know what, what's going to happen. We project what's going to happen in the future by, um, by prediction by looking at what's happened before, but something that we know in future studies is that there are radical breaks in the human experience that suddenly something will happen and you didn't expect that. And I think that um, what, the way I put it was when, when the future seems grim, uncertainty is a blessing. And it really is true. If we can break this idea that we know what's going to happen, um, then, then we can move forward into creating a future together. And one thing that, that happens right now is that people are, we are educating each other about the awful things that are happening. And we're saying we must stand up. We must take a, a stand against that. Um, the next step, though, in saying if, if we don't, 
then everyone's going to die is the thing that's giving <laughs> that's taking away people's hope, right? So um, uh, I think it's important to to remember that we don't know what's going to happen until it does happen, and that we have the ability to influence that. Um, so there there are spheres of influence. There are um, circles of influence. We we can influence in in future studies. We say we can influence most what happens to us in our individual lives, and then our influence um, becomes a little bit less as we go out from that circle. But we still continue to have influence. So you can um, there are power circles. Circle of power is self, family, community, country, and world. And what we do is we build our action from what we can do with ourselves to what we can do with the world. Um, and the, the important thing here is that love is the compass. Love is the thing that brings us together. Love is the thing that binds us. Um, eros as a force is, is gravity. Eros literally glues us to the earth. Love, love is, um, is what connects us to our life on the planet. So that's the, the compass as we, as we think about power. So with, with self, um, Working into to figuring out how to have power and how to change the world for the better so that we all get to survive. One thing is um, to remember that it's important just to pay attention to ourselves, to slow down, and to bounce back because there are going to be setbacks in our private action, our private worlds, and also as activists, we know that there are setbacks. We're having a terrible moment in the country right now. Um, and I look to I look to the the uh, civil rights movement. I look to to black and person of color led movements to to understand how to navigate that because it takes a very long time to to make yeah. a cultural change. And they've been working on this for for a couple hundred years now, right? So slow down and bounce back. Understand that you are not what has happened to you. What has happened to you does not necessarily have to define you. You can you can yourself decide who you are. And you can make a new choice every moment. If you've made a bad choice, this next moment you can decide to make a different choice. So there's there's hope. There's, both of those things bring hope. Um, the other thing I, I say about meditation practice is to, uh, or, or about self, is to get a meditation practice of any kind. It doesn't really matter what kind, but any meditation practice will help to release what has happened and the emotions around what has happened, and then to accept love from spirit. Um, we can do this certainly in the in the meditations on the the gods that we talk about, the Olympian gods. Each of them has an offering for us, and each of them um, has a, a task for us, a quest for us. Um, so that that's that's uh, my my suggestion about self for for group or family. Um, we don't get to choose who the family we were born with, but sometimes they're very supportive, and sometimes they're not, um, mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily have to choose our coworkers, but each of us, I know, I, I, everyone I know has a small group of people around us. If we have three people who deeply, genuinely care about us, it's important to nurture those connections. Um, and that, those are the people who will get us through the times, the, the, the terrible times, and we can get each other through that. So um, another important thing is to, to, in addition to making sure you have places you can get help, to give help when it is asked, right? Um, and that leads us into community to help one other person connect us with community and people going from um, self is, is an easy sale group. People understand that community people have a hard time moving out into community. It's very interesting to me that there's this sense of disconnect to the, the next level. So what I say is just do one thing, find out what that one thing is 
and do one thing. We can we can run a list of things that need attention, and there are tons of them, and it can feel really overwhelming. And so so you know whatever it is that's that's important to you, find out that thing, and then just do one thing. <clears throat> and I <laughs> I challenged the at SantiaCon, I turned to the the audience and said, for example. Join the NAACP. Anybody here belong to the NAACP? And everybody looked at me like I was a stinging insect. And okay, <laughs> no little hands went up. I went, okay, fine. That wasn't an instant sale, but it is true. You can, you know, join one group that you don't have currently a connection with, and and um, move outside of your comfort zone just a little bit, right? So help one person. Um, a lot of people uh, connect through their issue of homelessness. You can find the local food bank and donate a, a, a bag of food, right, or even just donate right. money online, and you've started to connect out. Um, so community, do one thing, help someone else. And then for the world, um, the the important thing is to affirm that the world is alive. Um, I said, uh you know, we, we have this idea that the world is a mechanism uh, or that we, we stand on the earth, right, that, that there's a, a division between earth and air. We stand on the earth, and then um, we, we breathe the air. But the world, as, mechan- as, a, as a living organism, the world extends seven miles above our heads. We're walking around in a living being. We are living beings in a living being. So to understand that is, is, um, is important. So um, for... For how you turn that into action, for for self, you know how to con- how to make affirmations for yourself. The group you want mutual support and clear communication and health, love, and prosperity. Mike Evans been meeting for almost 40 years, and every single time we meet, we we work for each other's health and for our our communication with our loved ones and um, health and love and prosperity. And every single time we meet, we have a stack of requests from people asking for those things. Those are the important things. People need help. People need jobs. People need people to love, right? So, so um, working with the group, those are your affirmations. For communion, community, I said, you know, let's write affirmations, what we want in our community. What I personally want is that every child is loved. Every person, child and adult, is clothed and fed and has health care and is connected in some way. I want those things, and I, I think that those are those are important things. And they are not commonly – they are not universally held values. It's one of the conversations we're having in, the, in this country right now. It's not a universally held value that everyone deserves health care. Elsewhere in the world, the decision has been made that that is important, that everyone does deserve health. If you talk to people from England, they have a, a free health care, right? They walk in and people get taken care of. And it has benefits beyond the individual. It has benefits to the community. So that's my, my affirmation for the community. And then for the world, my affirmation is that the UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights governs our behavior. This is a very important document. If you go and read it, it, it really has a very, um, a very comprehensive, clearly stated set of goals that, that um, move humanity forward. But for us as magicians, the most important thing I said, if we have one thing, you have one thing that you're going to try to make, make happen, do that one thing. Bill Gates, right, the, one of the richest guys in the world, said, what is one thing I can, I can do to, to make a change? And he decided to try to get children vaccinated. He said that's within his power, within his power to make one change. And he's been working on that ever since. Because if you vaccinate children, they die less. If you, they die less, people don't have to have as many children to replace the ones that have died. And it has profound implications on, on how cultures develop. So my, my idea for magicians, this is something that we all need to work on, make this one cultural shift 
about 300 years ago, we made the decision that the world is a mechanism, that it's not alive, and that animals are not alive. And this plays right into a lot of things that Tony says about how we treat animals. We treat them like mechanisms, like they're things yeah. that we can use. But they are part of the living organism. And the shift we need to make is this shift to resacralize the world, as, as uh, um, Apollonius um, said, as when I said this at Pantheacon, this is this is something we've been working on for a long time. The idea that the world is a living world. We make that shift. Many of the things that are happening now start to clear up. That begins to help us think not in terms of um, little pieces or what we can use or economies, um, but we think about what we can do to sustain life and to sustain the life of the world. So that's that's I think I I uh, recommend that we all. Put that in front of us and, and, and work toward that. So, so there you go. There's my, there's my presentation, Hercules. <laughs> wow, that, that is powerful. And that's in the back of the ceremonial magic book? That, that is awesome. I have to get a copy now. <laughs> that is powerful. <laughs> and um, you were saying before that, like, all the gods are, are one uh, in, and complete. And the, the things you were saying, I've been hearing them come out of the mouth, you know, separately and not as eloquently. Um, but what you said tonight, all of those separate ideas have been popping up in the conversations that have been on the podcast lately uh, on the importance yes. of love and the importance of realizing that uh, we're all one connected through this planet and this planet is alive uh, and that whether we eat animals or don't eat animals, we have to recognize you know, that animals are living beings. Uh, Descartes, I remember, uh, he used the fact that a dog made noise when he beat it to prove that a dog was a machine. So you're right. We need to change that type of uh, uh, consciousness, that way of interpreting uh, the world. Um, and I also believe very strongly the age of heroes, one of the messages uh, for that um, is basically – Start by being nice to the people in your house. <laughs> you know, to, if you feel you can't change the world, create a better world for the people that you know you're sharing your life with. You know, uh, do what you could do, even if it's one thing. Do that one thing, and that cumulatively, if enough people uh, did that, then the world would be a much better place for everybody to live in. Um, you know, and, and you don't need to change the entire world. Change one thing. Uh, my wife always says, you know. Uh, just because the government's telling you that you have to discriminate, you don't need to discriminate. You know, you don't have to do that. Uh, you don't have to do what other people are doing. You don't have to um, be nasty to people or be superior to people. You you have a choice not to do that. You could be, do something different. And then uh, you'll affect the experience of those people as well as your own, and they will affect the experiences of others. And it becomes like the proverbial butterfly uh, causing a typhoon. That is it's so awesome. interesting too because right right at the end of the the panel, a man walked in who hadn't really heard anything about the panel, and then he delivered this message. He said, "You know, we're all on this planet, and we all at some level know there's something wrong. Every right. one of us knows that we're we're communicating that, and there is a message that is coming through a number of people that's the same message, and it is this one that I just delivered that love is important, that the world is alive, yeah. and that um there is a, a greater power, however you conceptualize it, that is available to us and is saying to us, I, we will help, I will help, spirit will help if you bring us yeah. into the world. And so I think, I think it is, it's, it's, this is just like one voice. 
and there's a chorus of voices. And the more of us talk and, and uh, encourage each other to talk, the closer we get to pushing forward into a, a future where we are, um, where the world is alive, everyone gets taken care of, and we are all loved. Oh, awesome. Tony, I, I'd love to hear your impressions. I'm, I'm bowled over. Um, actually, I was going to talk about um, the way Brandy wanted to, um, to close the panel. She was talking about how theology can be used to, to can be used to connect us all together because it ties in with what that visitor wound up saying. He he only turned up like five minutes before the very end, and um, and the way I addressed that issue was I pointed out that um, in January 2018 there was a best country survey of um, 2,100 people from from all over the world, and they identified religion as the primary source of most global conflict today. And that's because spiritual beliefs create an inherent us versus them scenario. And um, so the divisions created by religion are deeper and potentially more harmful than those formed through other aspects of identity, such as race or nationality or political affiliations. Because the thing is that you're dealing with people's beliefs in the ultimate person of life the ultimate purpose of life and more than 80% of those surveyed said that religious beliefs guide a person's behavior and um, so my I don't want to sort of go into everything that I that I covered but I was basically saying that you need you know how there's, there's a, um, a meme that says that um, that religion is belief in someone else's experience while spirituality is having your own experience so the mm-hmm. best way to move people away from fundamentalism, from religion, is to move them towards some sort of spiritual It doesn't really matter what that spiritual experience is because it's all going to um, benefit them in the long run. And But, of course, you know, I'm pushing the idea of people dabbling in theurgy as a uh-huh. particularly form of, um, of um, uh, spiritual expression. So I believe that, that Brandy is correct, that it is very possible to unite people through either theurgy or some sort of spiritual practice because that would help to break down the division that, that, that religion caused. And the other and also that guy coming in and basically saying that people have this deep seated idea that there's something wrong. Um again is a is a is a form of spirituality. Interestingly, you know, my birth country, Australia, they've had the bushfires. And even though the conservative government there um for for the longest time disbelieved that the climate change was, was a reality, because of the bushfires, people came to realise that climate change is very much a real thing. The bushfires were worse than anything that anyone's ever experienced. And to give you an idea of how bad they were, um, there are rainforest areas, there's survivors of of an ancient continent. And what has happened, like Australia has these cycles where you have drought, bushfires, rain, and flood, and then it repeats again. And the environment is very good at regenerating itself. So there are these rainforest areas, and because they're permanently wet, normally bushfires will approach them, and because they're so wet, they burn out. And that's it. So there were areas of rainforest that had been wet 
for tens of millions of years. They were burning for the first time. Mm. So we're talking about something that hasn't happened in tens of millions of years. And I think confronted with evidence like that, most people in Australia have come to accept that climate change is real. So the government has changed tact and they're saying, oh, well, it is real, but we're hardly contributing at all. So it's business as usual. Let's just ignore it and put up with the consequences. The Australian experience shows that people are starting to understand that there are things very wrong with the planet and we do need to address them. The only people who are profiting um, are the, the, large, the, large, the large corporations, the other fossil fuel companies, the, 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 coal, the coal companies, uh, the, the natural gas companies, because they're raking in profits. What we really need to do is to um, get rid of our reliance on fossil fuels and move towards green, sustainable energy. It's the only way we're going to survive. That's very true. We have a candidate here. She's Greek, and her name is Zina, by the way. Uh, and uh, she is running for Congress, uh, and she uh, is running on the Green New Deal. And everybody's saying she has no uh, uh, chance of uh, you know, winning and uh, giving a variety of reasons why it wouldn't be wise to vote for her. Uh, but I want a green planet. So uh, um, I'm going to I'm going to do whatever I can. She's going to be a guest on the show next week uh, to help her spread her word. And, uh, you know, because that, I don't like thinking politically or strategically Uh, right now we need to take immediate action. So I'm going to try to support the people who want to take that immediate action rather than uh, people are going to say, we can't do it right now because uh, as you said, these things are real. We're being affected by them in very dramatic and scary ways. So the, the time to take immediate action is now, not later. Yep. Now we're, we're at the end of today's journey and I want to give you guys time to uh, say how people will contact you. But um, I had a thought um, I, in terms of some of these discussions we're having, uh, because they're political discussions, would you like to have a uh, a show that's theurgic and political? And so we can call it theurgic activism, and I'll put it on a day when we deal with politics, and this way uh, just basically get the conversation out there. I'm not sure what you mean by politics. I mean, I sort of this is sort of how I do the politics, so I, I, I kind of stay out of it um, in the way that you have done going out in the world. But t- Tony might be you know, a game for that. Okay, basically, um, like I have the Elysium Project, and the Elysium Project is all about trying to make the world a better place in small ways and big ways. Anybody who wants to make the world a better place uh, through whatever vehicle, be it uh, politics, be it education, be it human services, you know, whatever they're doing, um, you know, like right now we're focusing on stigma-free and, uh, um, you know, all sorts of uh, recovery programs. So, you know, I've been talking to them in the community and getting them on the show um, and giving them a platform, you know, because a lot of these nonprofits are small and they don't really have a range, you know, to get their, their message out. So I try to provide them with what I have, which is a slightly greater you know, range uh, and an audience uh, that will listen to them. So the, the same way I was thinking with uh, the theurgic activism, um, right now it has a place in this uh, show, in the forum that we do. But I was thinking of instead of leaving a part of Olympus, which is about uh, cosmic spirituality, and we could still talk about theurgy in terms of spirituality and uh, responsibility and uh, so forth, but to take some of these specific issues 
and to dress, address them theurgically um, on a political show because uh, three days uh, a month are devoted to politics uh, in my podcast. So to, to put something there occasionally where other people are talking about political topics uh, because it would be the same oh, yeah, audience. Yeah, point, point this discussion to another podcast. I got you. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really good idea because we've done a lot of that on this podcast. And I, I had some suggestions for um, for other guests um, that I connected with at PantheaCon that might take this, this conversation sort of in another, you know, or in a, in a well, more spiritual, again, direction, too. So and I um, I'll, send, I'll send those to you. Yeah. Uh, so briefly, the Water Witch. And, and, <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a woman who's the water witch and an Avalon, um, and she she specifically works with water. And we had talked about that on one of the podcasts. So she she said yeah she'd love to come on. And then we were talking about Denny Sargent, his book Werewolf Magic is about to come out, and he talks about he's very much connected to animals and to what's happening to the earth and to the the primal. And he did a lot of research that that led him into the Greek world. So we could get him on to talk about that. That'd be awesome. I saw that book too, and I said, "Ooh, I gotta, I gotta read that." Uh, we're out of time. Yeah. We're out of time to talk about as well. contact. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll put the contact. Uh, I've, I've already done it, but I'll add the contact again in another note tomorrow, and this so people can click on and find out more about you. Thank you very much. This has been an awesome experience. Uh, they're going to cut us off in 10 seconds. Um, and I wish you both uh, the best in all of your endeavors and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Hercules. Thank you. And thanks to all who joined us from home. Until next time, this is all of us wishing all of you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. And I can't even play music. So take care, guys. Thanks again. You're awesome. Okay, bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.